Okay, so shall we continue? Okay, so now we've gone through what I call the basic constituents, a basic outline of the Dharma theory. Now I come to what is called the attribute matika. You remember the word matika we had this morning. It's an outline or way of classifying things. And the whole Abhidhamma is constructed on the basis of a rather complex matika that we find at the beginning of the first work in the canonical Abhidhamma, the beginning of the Dhamma Sangani. And that matika is built up of, it's a scheme of 122 categories which are divided into two sets. One set is called, we call triads, which means a set of three terms. The other set or the other group are called dyads, sets of two terms. Okay, so now what, to give some examples of each, and they get pretty complicated, but I took some of the simpler and more basic ones. So we have the first triad is really the main one that determines the development of the early chapter, the first chapter in the Dhamma Sangani. The distinction of wholesome, unwholesome, indeterminate, that's neither wholesome nor unwholesome. So some dhammas are unwholesome, some are uh, some dhammas are wholesome, some are unwholesome, some are indeterminate. Then there are different kinds of feelings, and so there are dhammas, some associated with pleasant feeling, some with painful feeling, some with neutral feeling. Then there are some qualities that are to be eliminated by the first stage of enlightenment, which is called stream entry. And in stream entry, one sees the truth of the Dhamma. And with that, certain Dhammas are eradicated. Others are to be abandoned after one gains stream entry by continuing to cultivate the path. Those are the Dhammas to be eliminated by the second, third, and fourth stages of enlightenment. And then there are other dhammas that are not to be abandoned in either way. You don't have to worry about getting these things in detail. I'm just trying to show you how the scheme of triads is used. Okay, then there's a triad of limited dhammas. Those are the phenomena of normal sensory experience. Then there's exalted dhammas. Those are the phenomena that occur with the attainment of the jhanas and the formless meditations. And then there are what are called the measureless or immeasurable dhammas. Those are the phenomena that occur with the attainment of the world-transcending, super-mundane paths, fruits, and nibbana. So those are just a few examples of triads then the dyads, they're usually set out as simple affirmation and negation. So there are some dhammas that are roots. What are the dhammas that are roots? I'm sure you know them. Greed, hatred, and delusion. Yeah, non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion. 
So those are the roots. Then there are other dhammas that are not roots. <laughs> then to show you how the, they develop these dyads in a complex way, there are dhammas that have roots, dhammas that don't have roots, dhammas that are connected with roots, dhammas that are dis- not connected with roots. There are dhammas which have conditions, dhammas that don't have conditions, dhammas that are conditioned, dhammas that are unconditioned, visible dhammas, not visible dhammas, dhammas involved in sensory experience, dhammas not involved in sensory experience, dhammas that are material, dhammas that are not material, etc., 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 through a hundred of these. And then this, the, the Dhamma Sangani goes through these matik, matikas in two ways. First, there's a chapter three which goes through explaining, enumerating all of these dhammas in one way. And then chapter four goes through the same dhammas in another way. We don't have to be detained by the details here. But this is like some of the value of the Abhidhamma, that it makes heavy use of definition. It attempts to clarify the terminology of the suttas, both by the use of formal definitions, by sutta citations, and by positioning terms in relation to the classes of consciousness. Then I gave an example here of abstract definition. Okay, brings up what is greed, then it defines it usually by a list of synonyms, that which is lust, passion, attraction, infatuation, delight, delight in lust, desire, fascination, adhesion, greediness, thorough greediness, and so on and so on, craving. This is called greed. And sometimes it get, get bases its definitions by citing the suttas, like the definition of sakayaditi. Sakayaditi is the view of self. So it will cite a common passage from the suttas. What is Sakayaditi, the view of a self? Later we'll say, here the uninstructed worldly person regards form as the self. The self is possessing form. Form is in the self. Self is in form. Same with feeling, perception, volitional activities, consciousness. Okay, this is, I think, all we have to say about the attribute matika. And now this is like the main theme of the Dhamma Sangani, what may be the most lasting contribution of the Abhidhamma itself. And that is what I call the typology, typology of consciousness. So within, already in the Nikayas, we see that there's this analytical treatment of experience. And now the Abhidhamma carries that through in much more detail, so it develops a scheme for classifying all possible occasions of experience, all possible states of mind. And so this scheme is understood to reveal the entire domain of conscious experience, but viewed from a particular angle. It's not intended to be a comprehensive psychology, the way a modern Western psychology might be developed. You know, states that are neuroses, states that are um, 
mild neuroses, states of depression, states of bipolar, states of paranoia, states of schizophrenia, whatever. But there's a particular perspective from which states of consciousness are looked at, and this is concerned simply with where, how these states of consciousness fit into this Buddha scheme of mental development and ultimate liberation. And so here I have, I continue by saying that the concerns of the Buddha's spiritual practice are what determine the contours of this map of consciousness. And so we can simply state the three concerns as, we can simply state the concerns to be threefold. First, how to avoid those states of mind that create unwholesome karma, that result in suffering, that are able to lead to a lower rebirth, and that prolong existence within samsara, the round of rebirths. So that's how to avoid the negative. Then on the positive side, how to nurture wholesome states of mind, the states that generate wholesome karma, states that will lead to happiness here and now and in future states of rebirth, happy states of rebirth. Then the third aim is how to awaken and develop the wholesome states that lead to liberation. These are called the lokutara states, the states that transcend the world. Okay, then based on these aims, the Abhidhamma classifies states of consciousness primarily in terms of the triad, wholesome, unwholesome, and indeterminate. And I think if you look at an appendix that I have here, This is on page six of what's going on in the Abhidhamma. This will give us a good picture of what's the way the Dhamma Sangani is classifying states of consciousness. So first it takes the wholesome states of consciousness. And so it has first sensory sphere wholesome states of consciousness. Those are wholesome states that relate to sensory experience. Then we have form sphere wholesome states of consciousness. Those are the states of consciousness that they can occur within the human world through the attainment of the jhanas, But those states of consciousness are typical of the form realm, the realm of subtle form. So those who cultivate the jhanas without going on to develop wisdom are developing the states of consciousness that will lead to rebirth into the form realm, which are exalted realms of, say, divine bliss, far above our ordinary human realm, even above the sphere of the 
sensory devas or deities. Then there are the formless sphere, wholesome states of consciousness. Those are the states of consciousness that emerge in what are called the formless meditations, the sphere, the base of infinite space, the base of infinite consciousness, the base of nothingness, the base of neither perception nor non-perception. In those states of consciousness, all awareness of form has passed away, and those who develop those states of formless meditations and dwell in them often and become attached to them without using wisdom will tend to take rebirth in the formless realms. Then come the wholesome states of world-transcending consciousness. Those are the states that culminate in liberation. And in the terminology of the Abhidhamma, these are the four types of path, supramundane path consciousness. Okay, so the Dhamma Sangani takes the four types of wholesome consciousness first. It enumerates each one individually, enumerates the factors, the mental factors included in those states of consciousness and defines each of those mental factors. Then comes the unwholesome states of consciousness of which there are 12, eight originate from greed, two originate from hatred, eight and two, and then there are two which are rooted in strong delusion without greed or hatred. Whenever there's greed or hatred, underlying the greed and hatred is delusion or ignorance. But there can be two state there are two states of consciousness that can arise without greed or hatred but just delusion. That's the doubting consciousness and a restless consciousness. Okay, then come the indeterminate types of consciousness. Those are the states of consciousness that are neither wholesome nor unwholesome. And these fall into two categories. One are called the results. You see, the way the Abhidhamma understands the working of consciousness, wholesome and unwholesome states of consciousness create karma. And karma matures by creating other states of consciousness, which are called the results of karma. And so wholesome states of consciousness belonging to the sense sphere are one type of result. A1 here, it should actually say results of wholesome sense fear consciousness. Then come results of the wholesome form sphere consciousness, results of the formless sphere consciousness, then the results of the world transcending consciousness. And those are what are called the four fruits, the four fruits of liberation. And then come the results of unwholesome consciousness. Then there are types of consciousness, we call them functional, that they perform some kind of function within a process of consciousness, but 
they're neither wholesome nor unwholesome. And so I have them classified here, basic functional, functional relating to the sense sphere, functional relating to the form sphere, functional relating to the formless sphere. Again, you don't have to worry about the details, but I'm just laying this out so that you get a picture of the way the Abhidhamma sets itself this project of classifying all states of consciousness. You know, if you want to see these in detail, then you have to read the actual books of the Abhidhamma. And the summary, the Abhidhamma Sangaha, is helpful for getting a broad overview. In my notes, I have some rather detailed points. I don't want to bring those up now, but you can just read those on your leisure. But what I find useful to know, what I try to do is to see how these states of consciousness interrelate with one another. And so I try to find what I call the three laws that connect states of consciousness. So I say, here I'm on page four of the section, what's going on in the Abhidhamma. Page four, it's, well, this is a testimony to my own slip in mindfulness. I have two number fives. It should be number six. So one is what I call the fixed law of sequence. And this is a law that connects states of consciousness into regular sequences. In the Abhidhamma commentaries, this is called citta viti, which is translated as a cognitive process. And so states of consciousness don't just occur at random, but there's a certain meaningful process to the way a state the states of consciousness occur. For example, let's take a cognitive process when perceiving a visible form. What happens normally in our day-to-day life is that the consciousness or the mind is continually sinking moment after moment into the state of a kind of subconscious flow. Then now, say, a visible form strikes upon my field of perception, what occurs first is that that subconscious flow gets disturbed or shaken. And then the mind starts to emerge out from that subconscious flow. And there comes a moment which is called, again, you don't have to take notes on this, but this is just to illustrate, something called the five-door inverting chitta. It's a state of mind which just turns, you know, something is going on, and so it's turning to one of the five sense doors. If I were to see a form, it's turning to the, through the eye door. If I heard like some beautiful music that really was about to catch my attention, it would turn to the ear door. If somebody was cooking some delicious food in the kitchen nearby and the odor came through, it would turn to the nose door, wherever. Okay, so that's five-door inverting. Wow, my memory. Let's see, five-door inverting. Okay, then immediately after the five-door inverting occurs something called the bare sensory consciousness. So I see a form, a moment arises called eye consciousness. 
which just has the function of being aware of the form, but it's a fleeting state of consciousness just going by in a fraction of the snap of a finger. So it just takes in the form. It's followed by something called the receiving consciousness, which receives the impression of the form. Then comes a momentary investigating consciousness, which investigates the form. Again, it's very brief. Then comes a determining consciousness, which determines how to respond to the form. Then come seven moments of consciousness in which I'm responding to the form. If it's something you know, attractive, maybe craving arises for the form. Or it can be a form, say if I see an image of the Buddha, so it will inspire joy. So it's a wholesome series of consciousness accompanied by joy. And then there will occur two moments of consciousness which register that impression. So this is just an example of how states of consciousness of specific types occur in these meaningful sequences. And the way particular states of consciousness are tied together in these sequences, this is what I call the fixed law of sequence. And then these are described, these sequences, in a text like the Manual of Abhidhamma. The second law is what I call the mundane law of karma. This is the law that connects certain types of karmically potent consciousness to their respective results or fruits. So if I do something unwholesome, you know, I enjoy going hunting and shooting deer and rabbits. So this is unwholesome consciousness where those actions are motivated by unwholesome consciousness. And so um, when I'm pulling, the tr- when I take my gun, go into the woods, shoot, those are unwholesome states of consciousness arising. Then they arise, they create unwholesome karma. The evening I go out with my buddies, we go to the tavern, we drink, we talk, we joke. At night, I go back to my family. I've forgotten all about, well, I brought the animals I killed. I bring them back. You know, we eat them. We just go about enjoying our life. But there are these unwholesome states of consciousness which have created that karma there. And in time, when they meet with suitable conditions, those states of consciousness are going to bring their fruits, their results, which will be experiences of pain and suffering, And if they're strong enough, maybe an unhappy rebirth, a rebirth down in the lower realm. So here I am joking with my buddies in the tavern. We get into a fight and maybe one of them gets mad at me, shoots me. I die. Maybe a few weeks later, I'm up and about again and I'm woof, woof. I see the buddy who shot me. And he's thinking, why is that dog barking at me? Why is he growling at me? 
Yeah, that's why. (laughs) (laughs) And then if I do something good, okay, I give generously, I develop loving kindness, I'm helpful to others, kind to others. Again, I'm creating, in this case, wholesome karma. And so, even though I forget about these deeds and I go about my day-to-day tasks, still, that unwholesome karma is there and when it meets with its conditions, it's going to bring happy or favorable or pleasant results. So it's you know, very important to respect the law of karma, particularly when we're following the Buddha's path In life after life, we always want to meet the Dharma. And so if we do unwholesome karma, that's sort of cutting off our root connection to the Dharma. But if one does good, creates good karma, it's strengthening our connection to the Dharma. Okay, the third law is the law that connects certain types of consciousness. These are the world-transcending paths with their own fruits, the results of those paths. And so the cheetahs, the states of mind in the four paths, eradicate particular types of defilements, and then they're immediately followed by their fruit, in which one experiences the bliss of liberation from those defilements, fetters and bonds, And when one reaches the final fruit, then one experiences the bliss of being liberated from all of the bonds. And now it's interesting, in the Nikayas, the Sutta Pitaka, one doesn't find the idea of path and fruit presented quite in the way it's done in the Abhidhamma. In the Suttas, one finds a distinction made between persons who are said to be practicing for the realization of a particular fruit. So there's the person who is practicing for the realization of the fruit of stream entry, the one practicing for the fruit of once returner, the one practicing for the realization of the fruit of non-returner, the one practicing for realization of the fruit of arhatship. But one doesn't get the impression in the suttas that this is a person who's just going through a one-moment experience. But it's said that such and such a person, or it's said that a donor, somebody who's making an offering, makes an offering to somebody, on, makes an offering of a meal to a person who's practicing for realization of the fruit of stream entry. And one doesn't get the impression that he's putting the food in the monk's alms bowl, and then just for one moment, that monk reaches the path of stream entry, followed immediately by the fruit. But it seems that in the suttas, being practice, practicing for realization seems to be a temporally extended process, and then the fruit seems to be the attainment of that stage itself, attaining the stage of stream entry, the stage of once returner, the stage of non-returner, the stage of arahat. But in the Abhidhamma, it's said that 
there arises one moment of path consciousness, which is followed by one moment or two or three moments of fruition consciousness. So this seems to be a new conception, perhaps based on a finer analysis or a more technical analysis of what is taking place on the occasion of realization. Like in the suttas, they speak about somebody making the breakthrough to the Dhamma. But what is actually going on when one makes that breakthrough to the Dhamma? The suttas don't treat it in any detail. But in the Abhidhamma, one finds that that experience of making the breakthrough is dissected into this distinction of a path consciousness and the fruition consciousness. And these two are linked together by this law of liberation, the law that each path consciousness gives rise immediately to its corresponding fruit consciousness. Okay, my notes continue with a few more technical points which I don't think it's necessary to go into. Maybe we'll open up the floor now to questions. I do suggest if you're like interested in getting some detailed illustrations of some of the points I've covered, read the notes in full. But I think I've covered enough points to provide a basis for some discussion. So please feel welcome to ask questions. Yeah, speaking about karma, by the way, coming back to those termites that ate the Abhidhamma books, it was quite possible that they could turn out to be, you know, get reborn as human beings and then they'll just come right out and memorize the Abhidhamma text very easily. You don't want to ask a question? Well, I'm assuming that they had intention. Okay, let us take some questions. Hi, um, I'm uh, trying to relate this to practice day-to-day, and uh, uh, one of the things that seemed uh, really relevant was this distinction you had written up there between Paramatha and Samuti. And I'm wondering, it seems like that could be a good catalyst for just day-to-day experience to deconstruct things we think are real. Exactly, yeah. tease them apart until you can't tease them apart anymore, and then those things seem fairly neutral. Is that, is that how, I wonder if you could talk about, is that a way to use this, or how do you make yeah. use of the, okay. yeah, of all is, of these, these okay. uh, categories uh, okay. in, in practical life? Okay, this is a good, uh, in fact, you brought up a good point, how to use this distinction, paramatta and samuti. And as I said, I don't really like paramatta, the word paramatta in the sense of ultimate or something which is in, irreducible, unanal- something that cannot be further analyzed. But let's take the contrast between conventional concepts and actualities that are concrete actualities. Okay, so we get angry with a person or we have persistent resentment towards a person. And so what is happening is that we're grasping upon a concept of a person and building up a mental image of a person as being a concrete actuality, something existing in its own right. But now, if we want to dissolve that kind of resentment, that tendency to anger, 
one of the methods we can use is to investigate that person in terms of the constituents of being, the constituents of personal existence. So what are you angry with? Are you angry with that person's rupa, his bodily form? How could one be angry with physical form? Physical form is just, you know, constellation of material particles. And if we use modern science, we could say, okay, what is that physical form? It's a bunch of cells put together. The cells are made out of molecules. The molecules are made up of atoms. The atoms are made of subatomic particles. Subatomic particles are made out of quarks. So is that what the latest one is? I'm not following the latest science news. So the person, the body, it's just like a bunch of quarks. Can you be angry with quarks? Or angry with atoms or molecules? So it's senseless to be angry with the rupa. If you use like the Buddhist analysis, are you angry with the earth element? the water element, the fire element, the air element, the types of secondary matter, no point being angry with the rupa. And how about feelings? Feelings are always arising and passing away. So you can't be angry with his pleasant feelings, no point being angry with his painful feelings, no point being angry with his neutral feelings. Perceptions, no, no reason to be angry with perceptions. Volitions, you know, sometimes you don't like what the person does, and that's an expression of their volitions. So maybe the volitions are a little problematic area, but then you think, okay, those volitions are impermanent, they arise and pass away. Maybe there will arise in him sometimes volitions of doing nasty things to other people, but those volitions are creating karma, that karma will produce its unpleasant fruit for him. So he's going to suffer from his own volitions. No reason for me to add to his suffering by being angry with him. And then his consciousness that's always arising and passing away, and it's just bare awareness of what's going on. So it can't be angry with the consciousness. So in this way, through you know, investigating a person in terms of bare dharmas, bare phenomena, one can dissolve that feeling of anger and resentment. That's one method that can be used. And also, let's take... Okay, sometimes the example might be conceit or pride. You might be proud. You have certain skills that other people don't have. So you think okay, I'm better than those people, or I'm the best, number one. Then you investigate, what is it really that's number one here? You're thinking, I'm number one. What is this I? So you look into the I, am I bodily form? Am I really feelings? Am I really perception? Am I those volitional activities which are arising and passing away? Am I that consciousness? They're all permanent. They're all sort of bound up with dukkha. They're all non-self. And so in this way, one drops the kind of pride or conceit. Thank you. Okay, please. Yes. 
Um, as you've been describing uh, much of the day-to-day to my... I'm a rudimentary beginner with the Abhidhamma, but as I have heard you today describe experience as a process yeah. of bare phenomena. Right. And yet I also heard you just now in your explication and, and before in the question and answer say you were somewhat uncomfortable with the atomistic yeah, there's an um, atomistic experience, tendency. Yeah. Um, and yet I thought that was the heart of what you were drawing us toward. Um, can you reconcile that? The heart of what I was... Um, drawing us toward. So if the process of experience is nothing but their phenomena, yeah. which to me does feel atomistic, yeah. and yet you say you are uncomfortable with the atom... It may, I think you said that... that Reducing it yeah, to the yeah, atomistic yeah. makes you somewhat uncomfortable. Yeah. I wanted to know if you would reconcile that discomfort. <laughs> Do you understand what I mean? Yeah. Okay, what I would say is that there is that tendency towards atomism and reductionism in the Abhidhamma, but <clears throat> what's important to bear in mind in that even though there's this tendency to break things down into constituents, components, factors, when you take in the other side of the... There's an analytical side to the Abhidhamma and then there's the synthetic or relational side. And so what takes place in the relational side of the Abhidhamma, particularly in that book called the Patana, which lays down the conditional relations between all of the factors of experience, then you see that the reductionist and atomistic tendency can result from, I would say, a one-sided approach to the Abhidhamma. But it has to be balanced to avoid that reductionism. One has to balance it by taking account of the synthetic or relational side of the Abhidhamma, which brings in conditionality to show how all of the factors bind together into wholes. Thank you, that's helpful. Yeah, there's a very good essay by, actually my teacher, his name, the German monk, Nyanaponikatera. He has a book called Abhidhamma Studies. It used to be called Researches in Buddhist Psychology, then Wisdom Publications retitled it. I don't remember their subtitle. But the main title is Abhidhamma Studies. Then the second essay in that book is called The Twofold, The Two Aspects of the Abhidhamma Method. And he is specifically addressing there the tendency towards reductionism that one finds in a lot of Abhidhamma analysis or Abhidhamma explanation and says that the side of analysis has to be countered and balanced by bringing in the side of relational relativity, relation, relatedness, conditionality. Then one gets a balanced picture. In terms of what you've presented today, the, um, which part is the relational part, the relatedness and... and yeah, the relational part is what one finds emphasized in the seventh book called the Batana, where 24 conditions are laid down. We found, I gave some examples of it in, well, don't have to go back there, but how 
say the four elements are related to one another by this relationship of mutuality, how the four elements are related to the secondary types of form by being by co-arising, how different consciousness and the mental factors are related through, again, mutuality and co-arising. So this very complex interwoven web of conditionality which binds all of the factors together. Is that the matikas as well? The matika is pretty much analytical, as you see it in the Dhammasangani. But then what the patana does is to take all of the terms in the matika and then to explicate what are the conditional relations that hold these, these terms together or these factors together? What are the conditional relations between the wholesome and the wholesome, the wholesome and the unwholesome, wholesome and indeterminate, and then each gets subdivided into so many different subordinate aspects? This is really great. Thank you. Um, So my first part A of the question is there were two words I missed, and I'd like to write them down. And and so I I know you even specifically suggested that we not write this part down, but it interested me when you were talking about the 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 fixed law of sequence and the various laws, Um, and you spoke of five door inverting chitta, adverting, not not inverting, adverting, turning, meaning turning to. Adverting, okay. A-D-V-E-R-T, to Ad- advert to, it turns to. Okay, and then then there was, thank you, there was receiving consciousness, investigating consciousness, yeah. determining consciousness, yeah. and then there were seven moments of something and oh. two moments of something, and then I'll say oh, maybe why I I'm asking. I didn't give the technical term for those seven moments, but okay. they are called javana. Javana. I'll write it down. Okay. The word javana, it comes from the verb javati, which means to run. And maybe that word is used because these seven kinds of conscious, seven cheetahs, these seven mind moments, run one after another after another. The word javana, it's very, it's impossible to translate. So I think in the comprehensive manual of Abhidhamma, I think I didn't translate it. Because any English word doesn't really match the original. But it's the states of consciousness that create karma. It's the states of consciousness in which one responds to the sensory input. And it's in those states of consciousness that one creates the karma. And then that's followed when there's a very distinct object is followed by two moments of what are called registration consciousness, where one registers the impression of the object that's impacted on the mind. Ooh, thank you so much. Yeah, if the object is not so distinct, then one doesn't register the impression. Okay, it kind of doesn't go all the way. So the reason... The reason this feels interesting to yeah. me is we're learning these different frameworks and 
all that I really know is is what seems to happen in the practice of sitting. Yeah. And so where I've been watching is I, c- I can look at things from the perspective of the five aggregates and yeah. that, that seems to fit this experience. Yeah. And then I, I can look at things from the perspective of the dependent origination and that seems to fit. But yeah. then I'm... I'm curious about where and how th- those fit together mm. and about the, the asavas um, because I, I notice that mm. um, when there's a moment out of stillness where the chitta starts to have little waves, yeah. I can either go with it or sort of roll it back yeah. into stillness again. Yeah. And, and so I'm... I'm learning about these words and, and yeah. how they all yeah. connect. Yeah. Yeah. For investigation, I find like the scheme of the five aggregates is quite satisfactory, okay. which is probably why the Buddha. Why the Buddha used it as the primary scheme for investigation in the suttas. Things like this series of states of consciousness, it always used to be said that. They go by so fast that no normal person can discover them. This is supposed to be like the unique discovery of the Buddha. But now the Burmese meditation teacher, Pao Oksoyador, says that he, using his method, one could actually distinguish these individual cheetahs going by so very quickly. And people who have practiced that method say, yes, we can do that. But I say, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. <laughs> That's really neat. Thank you yeah, for giving yeah, us some yeah. really fun yeah. things to explore. So, um, having been served a fruit salad of from my karma, um, having been served a fruit salad of yes, the, of my ripened karma. Yeah. Um, it's an interesting experience to try and untangle that skein hmm. of thread. And um, and so I'm I'm wondering, you know, like where where do we go with it? You know, when I, you know, I, I mean, I, maybe I know how to answer the question myself, but I'm I'm curious because we're talking about this and we're getting really clear, and I'm thinking to myself, well, you know, we have unwholesome thoughts all the time that arise and yeah, fall and yeah, rise and fall. Yeah. And we work with them, and yeah. they change, and our yeah. minds are plastic, and blah, yeah. blah, blah. But, you know, periodically things ripen, and all yeah. of a sudden, there we are. Yeah, yeah. And so what do you, what do you think? <laughs> then what? Okay, well, naturally, things are going to, say, ripen from our previous karma, bringing sometimes good results which then can become objects of attachment. You know, so if what, things are going too smoothly one's way, there's too much, a lot of comfort, convenience, success, that can lead to pride and attachment. So then one has to use you know, the instruments of the Dhamma to see the danger in becoming complacent about comfort, convenience, luxury, pleasure, ag- being surrounded with agreeable things and break the attach, or at least reduce the attachment to those things. 
which doesn't mean one has to abandon them, but one can use them without being attached to them. Then when unwholesome karma ripens in the form of different experiences of suffering, pain, misery, rejection, failure, struggle, then one can reflect on this in terms of one's karma. Like this is perhaps the unfolding of my past karma, my previous unwholesome deeds. So I shouldn't be upset by this. I shouldn't be to blame myself. I shouldn't think that I'm a failure. But see this as the way I try to treat disagreeable experiences as challenges to develop wholesome qualities so that one could face these situations with equanimity or else use them as means for strengthening wholesome qualities within the mind. Particularly, you must know about we have the scheme of the ten spiritual perfections or paramis. Those are extremely important to develop. So when we meet with difficulties, then we see this as an obstacle to develop particularly patience and equanimity. When we meet with difficult people, see that as an opportunity to develop loving kind, patience and loving kindness. Or if the loving kindness doesn't work, then develop equanimity towards that person. So when there's pleasant experiences that tend to suck one into them with attachment, then one develops the attitude of renunciation or turning away from them or investigating with wisdom. And when there are disagreeable experiences or disagreeable people, relate to them with patience, equanimity, loving kindness, and always maintain determination to follow the path of the wholesome rather than the unwholesome. So I think, you know, the Buddha's teaching taken as a whole Without all, even without all of these details, just taking the general contours gives us very, very clear practical instructions on how to deal with both the agreeable and attractive and the painful, unsatisfactory side of experience and how to emerge from both sides stronger and triumphant. Okay, please feel welcome to speak. We have a question coming here. Thank you for these teachings. Oh, thank you. Um, I'm just wondering how um, the defilement of ignorance plays mm. in this in terms of um, what you don't know or mm. don't see or yeah. what doesn't arise. Yeah. Um, and and I guess it's related relationally because yeah. of the impact of that, that when we're kind of bumping around and not aware of the harm we might be creating. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm wondering about that yeah. at a broader level. At a broader level. You mean at the level of like daily experience, ordinary daily experience? Yes. Um, I'm, I guess I'm not real clear what I'm, <laughs> what I, what I mean by that, but I am wondering how how the the element of ignorance gets included into investigation or waking yeah. up or yeah. 
and and the impact that might have globally or or collectively yeah. in the sense of we're all one and kumbaya kind of yeah. Yeah. <laughs> kind of thing. So, um. yeah, there's a very short sutta in the connected discourses, the Sangyutta Nikaya, where the Buddha says. The element of ignorance is a very powerful element. (laughs) And it really has so many levels at which it operates. There are the very subtle levels which were intended to overcome, you know, through investigating, through insight, the nature of things like the five aggregates, sense bases, dependent origination. But also we find ignorance operating massively, you spoke about the situation in the world today, massively at the level of ordinary transactions between people and with the world. For example, this is like a sterling example of ignorance with a crown on its head. It's like, it's like a pig with a crown on its head. You know, all, all of the climate scientists are telling us planet is heating up, climate is changing, if we don't change course, droughts, storms, superstorms, violent hurricanes, droughts, heat waves, flooding of the coasts, changing topography of the land, famine, unstable states, great economic losses, but these CEOs at the head of the fossil fuel industry, the coal industry, gas industry, are getting together with their public relations company. You know, how are we going to deal with this, Bob? You know, <laughs> you know, the scientists just released this report the other day, it's in all of the newspapers that the Arctic ice is melting and they're predicting these changes for the planet. Like, you know, our, we made a good profit margin last quarter. If people get wind of this, they're going to start putting more and more pressure, turning to green energy. You know, we, we don't want them to do that. You know, so you're our public relations firm, Give us some strategies so that we could confuse the people a little bit more. Okay, so like that I would say is like a prime example of ignorance. Like those guys live on the same planet we do. What is life going to be like for them? You know, especially if he has a townhouse out on Long Island. You know, you know Long Island, it's east of New York City. <laughs> is going to get hit by these superstorms coming in. So he could lose his precious townhouse. But still, he's concerned, you know, how do we deceive the people, mislead them so that they don't put any pressure on our company so that we're not going to be, our profit margin won't be dropping? Yeah, so this is a kind of ignorance in everyday life. Yeah, and I find it's hard to, to look at that and say, well... Um, how do I get mad at, you know, the form? And how, do you, you know, how am I mad with, yeah. with this collection? You know, it's, it's, um, it seems to me that 
the the notion of concept is useful. The the samuti yeah is it, useful in working to awaken yeah. some of that ignorance. So you you almost can t- can take a a ball of something yeah. that is a concept or a notion or a belief yeah. to begin to investigate yeah. the deeper meanings yeah. that you know connect us all and raise awareness and what have you. But I just want, I, I really like the point three under the, um, the Dharma theory of the three conceptual schemes being a useful way to not just... Um, a useful way to investigate some of the relational yeah. complexities that we have. Yeah. Uh, and I was wondering if if that's too much of a stretch or if I'm trying to simplify things too much, but I could see those three points being so useful yeah, one in the face ab- of conflict and yeah. difficulties. And yeah. This kind of One example. has to distinguish the different levels and mm-hmm. not in any way dismiss what we call the samuti or conventional level as unimportant and just focus on what's called the paramata or ultimate level. Like when dealing with things like global warming, which is being intensified because of the behavior of the heads of the fossil fuel industries, if you think, okay, they're just a bundle of the five aggregates, just... Cheetahs arising, accompanied by feeling, perception, mental activities, consciousness, and uh, the physical form, related, co-arising, of mutuality, so and so on, then nothing will get done. To deal with ignorance at that level, one has to employ the conventional truth. And maybe an letters to the editor or essays, try to find ways to refute the misinformation, disinformation coming out from the companies. Or maybe if there's a march on Washington, join a march on Washington to call attention to the problem of global warming or link up with some of the organizations that are attempting to combat global warming. So within daily life, we have to deal with the grosser types of ignorance and that will often involve thinking and acting in terms of the conventional conventional truth. Thank you so much. Okay, we have a question here. Thank you. Um, piggybacking on global warming and segueing to ordination of women, which seems yeah. like a, a similar issue yeah. that's tied into yeah. cultural ignorance and historical yeah. ignorance. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and wondering, even today, as you were yeah. asked to translate the text, how the text informs the dialogue that's happening within Theravada Buddhism around the ordination of women? Yeah. That's the question? Yeah, I'm curious how scripture or how these, these texts are used to support or refute... Different positions. The, the positions. Yeah. And if there's flexibility around scripture or how scripture is understood. Yeah. This gets into rather subtle points in the interpretation of what's called the vinaya, the monastic discipline, mm-hmm. in which there are certain rules that 
concern the ordination of women, which have been interpreted in certain ways. This takes us pretty far from the Abhidhamma. Do you want me to answer that question? Maybe save that question. The evening is supposed to be like an open question and answer. So it seems to me that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a newbie to uh, Abhidhamma. I have to say it first. Uh, I've studied suttas and vinaya and uh, practiced meditation uh, that's been informed by Abhidhamma, but this is, today is my first introduction to it like this. And uh, I think I'm seeing that uh, the, the taking apart of, uh, of the phenomena is really useful for unbinding. And so looking at that CEO, taking him apart like mm. this, that may help to unbind the anger. And also simultaneously, uh, what is it, with the release of anger, seeing that there are just different conditions that have come together, the wisdom and the insight that arises out of that is not only passive, but can also be proactive. That is, seeing that these are causes and conditions, and that they're in flux, and that we have choice and intentional actions impact what is happening, they're a very important part of what's happening, then, then we see, uh, like if there were a bunch of ingredients that have been taken out of the shopping bag and laid out on the counter, then you can see what you can make out of them and make a choice about that. And uh, it seems like we can then make choices. It's like all the pieces are laid out and we see, oh, we can, we can pick up this and put it with that. That is, we, we change the conditions with our knowledge of causality and relationality because every moment you know, changes the law of nature. Mm-hmm. So it's not only, not only a passive uh, mm-hmm. unbinding that yeah. releases negative emotion, yeah. but uh, gives the opens the doorway for, for proactivity, wise proactivity, because we see conditions and we understand whatever we do with those conditions will have effect, does have effect. And that's where wise action arises, from my point of view, just getting yeah. what, I've, what I've been considering about what you've been saying today. And uh, to my mind, that applies equally to global warming, to women's ordination, to, to anything and everything. Okay, maybe we'll take one question now. I saw this woman with the blonde hair. Please, yeah. And then others who have questions, you can save them. We're having another session this evening. It's sort of like an open Q&A. I am wondering how much of uh, the sutta study and practice teaching that we are getting in the West is already permeated by um, Abhidhamma teaching without mm. our, our actually knowing that. And in some of the examples that you gave um, when you were talking about dealing with anger yeah. by analyzing either one's own reaction yeah. or the yeah. other person yeah. through the aggregates, that's kind of how the aggregates have been presented to me as pseudo study. So it may not matter to know that, but I am really curious. Are we already kind of walking around with the Abhidhamma just because it has been overlaid and packaged that way? Well, what I would say is that the the kind of teachings that one gets in the suttas on five aggregates, those suttas that are expounded in terms of the five aggregates, sense bases, elements, dependent origination, 
already have something of the flavor of Abhidhamma, though they're not yet worked out in its full detail and linked together into this systematic whole of the Abhidhamma. Um, you know, I, I can't really say for sure how much of the teaching, sutta teaching that you've been hearing is permeated by Abhidhamma. But usually when I give talks or classes, I base my classes entirely on the suttas. But then if I want to bring in something from the commentary, I'll say, this is what the commentary says about this. Or if we take an Abhidhamma standpoint, this is the way the Abhidhamma would treat this. So I try to keep them distinct. When I was sort of brought up as a monk, trained as a monk in Sri Lanka, I was pretty much told that everything, all these aspects of the teaching fit together into one single unified whole. And so I took sutta, abhidhamma, commentaries, all in one block. And so I was looking at the suttas very much through the standpoint of the commentaries. But as time went on, I came to see that there were certain points difficult to reconcile between sutta and commentaries and abhidhamma or at least I saw that they stem from different historical periods. And so one has to be careful in making distinctions between them. And so now when, when I teach, I base on the suttas, and if I bring in anything from the commentary, I'll say this is what the commentary says. And even if you look at the notes to my more recent translations, I'll often quote the commentaries, but I say in the preface, as a kind of word of warning that we have to be beware that the commentaries were written in the 5th century, which is like you know 900 years after the time of the Buddha, and they reflect the views that had accumulated in a particular monastic center in Sri Lanka over the centuries. So one can't read, one has to be cautious of reading the teachings of the commentaries and the Abhidhamma into the early texts. Okay, I think we should now take a nice break. It's a little after five o'clock. Yeah, yeah. So we are going to come back in at seven, and there will be a sit between seven and seven thirty, yeah. and, and the monastics will be joining us for that sit, and then there will be an open Q and A about whatever you'd like to do—a more casual Q and A, but to certainly include questions from the Abhidhamma that have come up or there's some points he made in his, his, his the, the written material that no one's asked about. Like he uses this line, this presents us a puzzle. Nobody asks, what does that mean about that puzzle? What is that? But you say at one point, some, this presents us a puzzle and no one's, oh, yeah. no one's asked that question yet. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. just to stimulate maybe looking at the literature oh, yeah, again. Yeah. So uh, we will be, once they leave, we will all leave and then I'll see you back in here at seven. Okay. Usually when we end like a teaching, I do so, recite verses to share the merits with the devas, the buddhas, those are the deities, the fair spirits, the dharma-protecting deities, so that we make them happy, and when they're made happy, then they'll protect the bodhi mandala, the site where the dharma is being taught. Okay, so now with your minds, you think that there are maybe hundreds or thousands of invisible beings around here waiting to receive the merit from our 
teaching and discussion and listening to the Dhamma. Akasa ta chabumata deva nagamitika punyantang anumoditva chirangrakantu sasanam akasa ta chabumata deva nagamitika punyantang anumoditva Chirang rakantu desanam akasata chabumata deva nagamahitika punyantang anumoditva chirang rakantu mangparang etavata chamhehi sampadang punya sampadang Sabe devanumodantu, Saba sampati siddhya, Etavatacha amhehi, Sampadang punya sampadang, Sabe bhutanumodantu, Saba sampati siddhya, Etavatacha amhehi, Sampadang punya sampadang, Sabe satanumodantu, Saba sampati siddhya. Bhavagupadaya avici hetato, Etantare satakayupapana, Rupia rupicha, Asanya sanino, Dukha pamuchantu, Pusantu nibuting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.